Welcome to Probably Science. I am Andy Wood, and my co-host Matt Kirshen and I have, have taken to the road We've once taken again. To the road. We're, we're once again in Pasadena, site of the lovely Caltech, for a special special guest. We Very special. I know a lot of you guys really liked the episode we did with Jan Levin a few weeks ago, theoretical cosmologist, and as we were leaving, she said, oh, I could maybe put you in touch with some other scientists if that's something you'd want. And we were like, yes, that is exactly something that we would want. <laughs> we want more of that. And, and the first thing she said was, oh, you got to talk to Sean Carroll. So she was kind enough to email and put us in touch. And Sean was kind enough to say, yep, come on up to Caltech. So thank you, uh, Sean Carroll. The mic was not on. I'm still <laughs> happy to be here. There we go. Physics. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you're, you are a theoretical physicist, a an author with two popular books and probably many more academic ones. But the author of um, The Particle at the End of the Universe and From Eternity to Here. That's right. Those two popular books, one textbook in general relativity, but then mostly what you do as a physicist is you write papers, not books. Oh, okay. That's my stock and trade. Right. So the books are the more like, hey, general public, here's the stuff you can follow. The books, yeah, they will actually pay you to write the books. It's great. You know, when you write a physics paper, you pay them to publish it. So it's not always... Really? I didn't know that. Neither did I. Yeah. I mean, it can be as low as zero if you choose the right journals, but many journals have what are called page charges. And so... uh, So it's actually, it's financially in your interest to write a really short paper. It is. That's exactly (laughs) right. Yes. So is that, is that most of where a journal's money comes from then or not? You know, the whole journal ecosystem is changing very rapidly right yeah. now because nobody reads them because everything is online. In fact, uh-huh. physicists were, you know, at the vanguard of putting their papers online for free for everybody. And you can go to a physics library and look at the journals. And you can see around 1992-93, all the journals, you know, go from being uh, worn out and used and cracked to afterward, no one has ever taken them off the shelves. <laughs> it's just on the really? web for free. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess the, well, the internet makes it so much easier anyway, just to, because you don't want to flick through pages and pages when you can just do a keyword search for a few. Even if I want to look at one of my own papers, <laughs> I go to the internet. I mean, it's just much quicker to find <laughs> yeah, them and right. look at these it's, stacks of papers, right? It just makes sense, yeah. Um, and the other thing is you, you also blog. You're a, a prolific blogger under uh, your website, a preposterousuniverse.com. That's right. I'm a uh, blogger since 2004, so I'm approaching my 10th anniversary next year. Nice. And, and I would and, uh, recommend... Uh, think most listeners to our show have an interest in in science in general you i've had a look your blog's great you post uh, your own writings but also just any interesting links and absolutely stories, videos. yes no standards at all <laughs> <laughs> so so do check that out uh we normally start off by asking our guests uh which is a ridiculous question when it is a real scientist but what is your background in science yeah i have a background in science. <laughs> uh, do you have was... so you uh so those books on your shelf aren't just out of interest, just, just <laughs> well, to look nice? We live in Hollywood. I can get props from uh, you know the movie studios very easily to make it look like an academic environment. But uh, yeah, I was one of those kids who just loved science from a very, very early age and very, very specific. You know, when I was 10 years old, I found black holes and particles in the Big Bang. And I'm like, that's what I want to do for a living. So I right. did it. High Screw school, you, college. dinosaurs. Uh, yeah. Dinosaurs were second. That was okay. my, you know, my second love were the dinosaurs. And in fact, I, I got to go on a couple of dinosaur digs later in life after I'd become a professor. So uh, okay. I both sides of the dream, yeah. Was that in a professional capacity or did you just kind of get talking to one of your... 
Well, it was certainly not professional in the sense that they thought that I was the guy they really needed to help dig up dinosaur fossils. But uh, there was an outreach group when I lived in Chicago called Project Exploration. uh, And one of the leaders was Paul Serino, who's a very famous, very accomplished paleontologist who's made many discoveries. But he would bring sort of... uh, friends and donors to Project Exploration out to Montana or Wyoming to dig up Triceratops and Montosaurus, things like that. And uh, so I went along as sort of another scientist to help tell stories. You know, the house cosmologist, that's what we need on any good paleontological expedition. <laughs> well, I guess expedition. When, you're out, when you're out in those places in the middle of nowhere, very little light pollution, at nighttime you suddenly get a lot of stars. Yeah, I know nothing whatsoever about stars. You know, I'm about the laws of <laughs> physics. The right. stars just happen to be one good way to find them out, yeah. So what is, it, what, are you, what is the actual area of your research? Because your popular science writing, you, you've, written about, uh, you've written about the Higgs boson, you've written about the arrow, about, of, time. The arrow of time, which I'd lo- love to talk to about in a bit, because uh, that's something I'm still not sure I understand in the slightest. Uh, but when you're, like, when you're actually working, either, I don't know whether you work solo, whether you collaborate most of the time, Mostly collaborating, yeah. And so theoretical physicist is really the, just the safest way to do it. Right. Much of what I do is cosmology, thinking uh-huh. about the whole universe. But also a lot of what I do is field theory, you know, inventing different models for dark matter, dark energy, new forces of nature, things like that. We- and increasingly I'm thinking about quantum mechanics, statistical mechanics, some of the basic rules uh, by which nature works. Okay. Um, this is a, the beginning of a massive question topic, but what is dark matter and, what, and dark energy? Because this pops up a lot, and I think it's one of the it's probably one of the most hand wavy topics. Like you know, dark right. matter, yeah. you know, the dark stuff that's in there that that's we. Are, right. it, well, dark matter and dark energy. Uh, so the the important difference is that dark matter is easy to understand, and dark energy is hard. Okay. So dark matter is just matter that is dark. In fact, it's a it's a kind of matter. It's a kind of stuff that does not interact with photons. That's what dark matter is. So okay. imagine that the moon was completely invisible and transparent. You know, you just absolutely couldn't see it. It didn't glow. It didn't absorb any light or anything like that. So any photon that, that hits the moon passes straight through it untouched. Imagine that that was true. Right. right. We would still know the moon was there. Why? Gravity? Mm-hmm. Why? Because of mass? Or because right. it has how mass? Do we, how do we notice that the, that the moon has gravity here on Earth? That'd be the effect that it has on other on other bodies, like on other... For example... Tides. Tides, that's right. right. The water here on Earth gets sloshed around by the moon because it has gravity, because it has mass. And so dark matter is exactly like that. Dark matter, there's some stuff, some particles. We don't know what exactly the particles are. We never made them in the lab or anything like that. But we know how much of it there is. We know where it is because it pushes around, using gravity, other stuff in the universe. You know, right. It pushes around light and dust and gas and stars and all that stuff. We can actually map out the dark matter pretty uh, precisely. So it does It does still bend light, but it doesn't absorb or exactly. scatter light. Einstein says that every kind of stuff affects gravity. Right. But the other forces of nature, like light, which is electromagnetism, or the strong force or the weak force or whatever, these come and go depending on what kind of particles you're talking about. Uh-huh. So the dark matter is a kind of particle, just like atoms, except it's a kind of particle that does not interact with photons, with light. But does it have, it has mass, and has mass? if it were, if there were a a baseball of dark matter coming at me, would it go through me or would it hit me and I would feel it hit me? It would go totally through you because almost everything that, almost all of the interaction that you have with the outside world is via electromagnetism. You are made of atoms, right? And those atoms uh, interact because electrons 
atoms. Uh -huh. The outer orbits of the atoms have an electromagnetic field. And that's where that's when the real baseball does hit you, the fundamental law of physics at work is electromagnetism. Oh. There's atoms in the baseball, there's atoms in you. <laughs> right, so, so that's you uh, like... baseball out of dark matter would just go right through you. So that's the atoms in the baseball hitting the atoms in your body and repelling each other with electromagnetic... That's right. That's exactly right. Force. I mean, basically, you know, there's four forces of nature, right? Gravity, electromagnetism, and then the two nuclear forces. So the nuclear forces are, are good for keeping nuclei together and mm -hmm. so forth, but, but that's, that's once and for all. They're there. They're, they're settled, except for radioactivity. That's not an everyday important process. Mm -hmm. Gravity, of course, keeps everything on the Earth. That's very important. Absolutely everything else that you notice in your everyday life is electromagnetism. When you turn on the TV, when you talk to people, when you sit on the chair, when you get hit by the baseball, when you fly, when you send uh, signals through your phone, it's all electromagnetism doing the work. So dark matter is tough for us to get a handle on because it doesn't interact with electromagnetism. But right. it does interact with the Higgs field that gives things mass? Well, it might. That, that we don't know, actually. And, you know, that's a little bit of a, a, a fine point here. The Higgs field gives mass to the particles we know. Oh, There's okay. no rule that says that all particles have to get mass from the Higgs field. So the dark matter may or may not be a particle that gets mass from the Higgs. So have we, like, I know we've, we know that dark matter exists and we've seen the effect. Have we, under any kind of experimental lab conditions, produced or created or trapped or seen dark matter? We have not, but we're trying very, very hard. Right. And we're right on the verge of where we would expect in many, many popular theories of dark matter to see it literally any day now. You know, right. you would wow. not be completely surprised if this year or next year there's a front page story in the New York Times saying we found the dark matter. Which experiments are the ones that are trying to find that? Oh, there's like a half dozen working right now. There's one called CDMS, which stands for Cryogenic Dark Matter Search. Uh -huh. Uh, there's one called Xenon, because they use the element Xenon in their uh, laboratory. There's one called Lux, because I don't know, that's a cool name, and <laughs> yeah. Lux means light. And Probably named after the Lux or Casino in uh, Vegas. <laughs> no doubt. Be, no that's doubt. right. Yeah. They do the experiment in the top of the pyramid, I think. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah. So what these guys do is they go underground, where you can avoid the cosmic rays and the other noise that you'd be subjected to, and they build a big vat of stuff. And they wait, you know, even though dark matter doesn't interact very much with mm -hmm. ordinary matter, it's very plausible that it interacts a little bit. Right. The favorite candidate for dark matter are weakly interacting massive particles. And the word weakly there doesn't mean not very much. It means the weak interactions of particle physics. So we know exactly how strong those might be. And we wait for a dark matter particle to bump into an atom, leave some energy there, and we look for that. We try to notice that. Okay. So it, it would... I guess I thought we'd already sort of prove it. So we haven't even, we're not going to ever have what you would consider, uh, obviously we're never going to have a, a picture of dark matter, it's impossible, but we don't even have definitive proof of its effects. I thought there was already an understanding that because of these effects we've seen, it definitely exists, or is that still what we're trying to... Yeah, no, it definitely exists, because we uh, see yeah. its gravitational impact. So the fact that we have only seen it through its gravitational impact, uh, well, number one, you can actually make pictures of it. You know, we, we have made maps of the dark matter terrain that are mm -hmm. quite beautiful. And, you know, if you have a website, we can, I'll send you some files and you can link to the, these beautiful maps of where the dark matter is. Nice. Uh, but more importantly, so because you can only see it through gravity, there's another obvious guess as to what could be going on, which is that there is no dark matter, but gravity is misunderstood, right? Oh, maybe, okay. maybe Einstein and Newton were not 
smart enough to figure out gravity, right? And that's a very logical, very sensible thing to think. However, there's been increasing amounts of evidence over the last 10 years that we've seen gravitational pull in the direction, in, in directions of space where there is no ordinary matter at all. Mm -hmm. And that means that there's got to be something else there doing the pulling. Even if you modify gravity, there has to be something causing the gravity. Mm -hmm. And there is something, and that whatever that something is, is dark matter. Okay. And you were saying that's easier to understand than dark energy. Right. Okay. Because dark matter is just matter. You know, you're, you're familiar with right. matter. Dark, dark energy isn't even particles. It's not even matter in the conventional sense. It's a kind of energy that suffuses all of space. Right, it, every cubic centimeter, as far as we know, mm -hmm. uh, of the universe has a certain amount of dark energy in it, and it doesn't change from place to place, and it doesn't change from moment to moment. So, the universe expands, right? And in ordinary stuff, ordinary matter, dark matter, it dilutes away because the volume goes up, but the number of particles doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Right. The dark energy stays at the same density, the same amount of energy per cubic centimeter, even as the universe gets bigger. So that's why we've only noticed dark energy in the history of the recent universe, because its, its importance grows with time because it doesn't dilute away, even though everything else does. So the ratio of it to the universe increases. Absolutely. That's right. So, you know, when we look at the early universe, dark energy was utterly negligible. It was nothing. But today, it's like 70% of the energy density of the universe. In a few billion years, it'll be 99.9%. Does that violate any... I mean, I'm sure it does violate some rules that were made before we knew what that was about the, the creation of uh, energy or, or mass, doesn't it? I mean, the, it doesn't violate any rules that exist. It only violates rules that we told you when you took physics in right, high school. Right. Right. Uh, it turns out that once you're Einstein and you invented general relativity, right? Einstein's great theory of which space we all were at one point. Time. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, once you realize that space and time are flexible what Einstein tells us, energy is no longer conserved all by itself. The, but energy the, and mass are conserved together? Are no, they're just not. Okay. They're just not. The, the change of space-time itself can take energy from or put energy into stuff particles, waves, right. things like that. So, And this is not has nothing to do with dark energy. This was true way before dark oh, energy. Okay. The fact that the universe is expanding means that energy is not conserved. Oh. But it used to be that we thought that the energy would just go down because photons, you know, the particles of light, mm -hmm. they lose energy as the universe expands. They're stretched. The wavelength gets increased as the universe expands, and that means that the energy per photon goes down. But somehow losing energy doesn't bother people as much as creating energy. So dark energy works the other way around. The total amount of dark energy in it's any given increasing. expanding volume goes up. That's just the way it is. Perfectly predicted by Einstein, perfectly consistent with all the observations. And how do you actually empirically prove the existence of dark energy? Or what's the, what's the impact it has well, on us that we've seen? And how do we know it exists? Like right. So, well, dark energy is a tougher case. We're not as sure that mm -hmm. dark energy exists because, again, you could imagine maybe we just got gravity wrong, right, in a, in a different, more subtle way. And there's less to study about dark energy than dark matter because dark matter, you know, it can move around. It can clump in different places. You can make maps of it. Dark energy, as far as we know, is just exactly the same everywhere. Once you've measured a certain one single number, how much dark energy is there at every point in space, that's the only number there is to measure. There's nothing extra to learn. So it, it's, a, it's a constant of physics, like... 
That's right. In like fact, the gravitational we call it or... the cosmological constant. That is the okay. best candidate for dark energy. And, you know, we could be wrong about that. There could be just very, very subtle changes mm-hmm. from place to place that we haven't noticed yet. So we're looking for that. We're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to test whether or not that's true. So how have we measured it so far? Well, it's everything. Remember, Einstein says everything that exists and has energy has a gravitational influence. In this case, because it's perfectly smooth, the dark energy doesn't pull you from place to place, but it does affect the expansion of the universe itself. In fact, it causes the expansion of the universe to accelerate. Because basically, you can think of the, the rate at which the universe is expanding as something that is proportional to the amount of energy. And as, as long as the amount of energy was going away, the universe could slow down in its, in its expansion. But uh, if, the, if the energy density just stays there, is constant, is not diluting away, then the universe keeps expanding at a constant rate. Right, which is in turn acceleration. That's right. So it's weird to say the universe is expanding at a constant rate and therefore it's accelerating, right? But right. what it means to say it's expanding at a constant rate is every 10 billion years, the universe doubles in size. Right. So if you look at a single galaxy, it's 1 billion light years away, then it's 2 billion, then it's 4 billion, then it's 8 billion, and we say it's accelerating away from us. Uh, right. Again, how long was it? How long between doublings? About 10 billion years. 10 billion years. Roughly. Wow. So it's not a rebalance your stock portfolio yeah, kind of yeah, question, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, it is very, very important for the ultimate fate of the universe. So we, we live in this wonderfully rich and complex environment right now in in the cosmos where there's not only all the stuff we see which is by itself very complicated the whole periodic table of stuff right but there's also an interesting amount of dark matter there's also an interesting amount of dark energy uh it's possible that dark matter is more than one kind of particle maybe there's a whole periodic table of dark matter that interacts with itself in different ways it it's Maybe there's not also, mm-hmm. you know, we don't see interactions within the dark matter, but you know, maybe we're just not looking hard enough yet. So this is, I like to call this decade of, of uh, the 21st century, the dark matter decade. This is really the decade when we're beginning to figure out how dark matter works. Okay. And dark energy, it still seems is pretty boring, but you know, we always could get lucky. And dark matter, I mean, if you had to, I mean, this is a ridiculous just thing I'm asking you to speculate on, but what percentage of the mass of the universe is dark dark matter? Is it sort of negligible compared to everything else that's... No, dark matter is about 25% of the universe oh, wow. right now. So the, the numbers keep changing, and you have to update your slides and whatever, but uh, if you give talks on this stuff, as, as I'm sure you will do, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm getting ready for the next week. Yeah, how are the slides going right now, Andy? Yeah. Uh, they'll be ready at time. They'll be ready at time. Yeah. Right now, it's just a picture of, like, a chef. <laughs> <laughs> He's cutting, the, like, lamb off of one of those spinny meat sticks. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, it just has the universe. Yeah. <laughs> So, the, but the numbers to remember are 70% of the energy of the universe is dark energy, 25% is dark matter, and that leaves 5% of the universe is you and me and the rest of the ordinary matter. Wow. Everything we've ever made in a laboratory, studied here on Earth, seen with our eyeballs is 5% or less of the universe. Jeez. So, c- so I'm happy to contribute to your feelings of insignificance, <laughs> uh, the cosmic landscape. Uh, yeah, just, if you thought, just when you thought the universe was enough. Right. Um, not even that much of it. Just but we, I mean, matter as we know it. the universe is yeah. made of. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're doing that thing as a kid when you write your address and you write you know, like your street and then the town and then the city and then the county and then you sort of go like Earth, right. the, the right. solar system, the, ge- <laughs> the Milky Way, the universe. But a tiny bit of the universe. Yeah. You now yeah. need to add like an extra line underneath that again. You know, if the universe is a Christmas tree, we're the lights on the Christmas tree, right? We're the easy part to see, but we're not most of the substance. Wow. Can... um. Is it thought that 
dark energy and or dark matter can switch between energy and ma- matter energy and mass the same way that the you know, regular mass love, and energy can. We would love to can. see that. Right now, uh, there's a sort of very, very simplistic idea, namely that the dark energy is just fixed and constant, and the dark matter is just a bunch of particles that don't interact. Right. So that's a very simple model. It's called lambda CDM, because lambda is for the cosmological constant, is what the, the name Einstein gave it, and CDM is cold dark matter. Uh, we would love for that to be wrong. We would love to study these things to death and find subtle interactions, transformations, annihilation of the dark matter into ordinary energy. So we said one way to look for dark matter is to go underground. Another way is to look at the sky, to look at the center of our galaxy and to search for high energy gamma rays caused by dark matter particles annihilating and giving off energy. Haven't seen it yet, definitively, but that's certainly a possibility we're keeping an eyeball out for. So I'm curious if if the dark if dark energy is is sort of fueling the expansion of the universe then what's your take on what what direction is the universe heading is it is it going to expand infinitely or will it we don't know for sure, but there's there's the smart money is on a very simple idea that says the universe will expand forever and it'll become increasingly emptier and colder and more lonely until there's nothing left but empty space. And then it won't come back in and contract again or something. Nope. It's just that was a good idea at the time. But uh, right now, the smart money, like I said, is, is elsewhere. But, you know, we don't know because even if the dark energy is constant as far as we can measure, it could change its character sometime later on. It could be like ice that will someday melt, right? And then it'll be a very different story. Okay. Is this, is this at all a good tie-in to get into the arrow of time since that sort of seems to be entropy-related? It is, yeah. So think of it this way. Um, our universe is 13.8 billion years old, roughly speaking, since the Big Bang to today. And you can say, well, gee, that's a long time. That's, you know, 1.4 times 10 to the 10 years. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's, that's pretty old. Uh, but then go to the future. Right. You know, we can actually map out with with some degree of confidence, as long as the laws of physics remain more or less what we think they are, what will happen in the future? You know, the stars are going to burn up all their fuel and stop burning. So Mm -hmm. a quadrillion years from now, 10 to the 15 years from now, the universe will go dark. You won't see stars or galaxies in the sky anymore. And gradually, you know, they will drift away. Many of the stars will fall into black holes. Mm -hmm. Those black holes will evaporate because Stephen Hawking said that even black holes gradually evaporate into nothingness. And one Google years from now, 10 to the 100 years from now, there'll be nothing left. And that will last, according to this model, forever. (laughs) So you have 14 billion years to the past, but infinity years to the future. Of nothingness. That's very bizarre. So that's, you know, one way in which we are not typical in the history of the universe. We live in sort of the comfy, warm aftermath of the hot Big Bang. Mm -hmm. But most of the history of the universe is in the cold, desolate regions of the future. Which kind of, by definition, we'd have to. No, that's we- not true. Uh, even though the future of the universe is uh, less hospitable, uh-huh. there's also a lot more of it. Okay. <laughs> so you can do sort of a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and it's worrisome because it says that actually most people should live in the desolate, cold future. I am uh, wrong about a lot on this show so far. <laughs> there's a whole great. scenario, um, which might be too wild to get into, but, it, but it's fascinating. It's known as Boltzmann brains. Let's go for it. What yeah, does yeah. this mean? So um, 
there's this interesting fact. We said that black holes evaporate, right? Uh-huh. The black holes give off radiation. But what that means is that black holes, uh, they give off radiation, but they also get smaller and smaller until they just poof, they're gone. Right. Which uh, takes a ludicrously long time. It takes a ludicrously long time. But again, infinity years. We have to wait. So right. that will happen. Um, it turns out that it's the same thing is true in a universe with dark energy. If there's dark energy and it doesn't and it's strictly constant, it does not dilute away, which is fine according to the laws of physics, it's the simplest idea, then the universe itself is like a black hole. It's always giving off radiation. There's a temperature to the universe. So things get colder and colder in the future, but they don't bottom out at zero degrees Kelvin, at absolute zero. They remain stuck at ten to the minus thirty degrees Kelvin, which is very, very cold, but not zero. So if you were, if you go to the very far future and put a thermometer there, there's a tiny temperature that registers this non-zero value. Right. And so that means like that the universe in the far future is like a box of gas at a fixed temperature that never changes. So there's a whole, there are particles that are rattling around. They're very, very, very cold, but there are fluctuations. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, the occasional high energy particle that comes by if you wait long right. enough balanced out by a lot of nothing. A lot of nothing, right. And if you wait longer than that, then these high-energy particles bump into each other, and maybe they'll make a proton and an antiproton Right. if you wait a long time. If you wait a very long time, then maybe you'll make a proton and an antiproton, and they'll go their separate ways. And you'll also make an electron and an anti-electron, and you can make a hydrogen atom and an anti-hydrogen atom. Right. You see where this is going. If you wait long enough, you'll make a virus out of the fluctuations of nothingness, out of the quantum fluctuations of space well, itself. If you have an infinite amount of time, then every possibility can happen. Exactly right. And it will an infinite number of times. So if you wait long enough, people like you and me in this room and Caltech and whatever will be created again, not in the aftermath of a comfy, <laughs> warm Big Bang, but just because if you wait long enough, all arrangements of the energy of the universe will eventually reappear an infinite number of times. Even when it's become so vast that the it doesn't matter how spread out and cold and basically empty it is, there's enough something that eventually things will blip up for a few billion years that are like this and then go away. And but then... not even a few billion years. That's the thing. So this is, this is where it gets a little bit existentially anxious. Uh, if you wait for these quantum fluctuations in mm-hmm. empty space to make you and me, you don't need to wait for them to make the whole universe. You just need you and me. You just need us here in this room. And so even though we have the impression in our brains that if you walked outside, there'd be something called Caltech and something called California, et cetera, it's much easier to fluctuate randomly into us with those memories than to actually fluctuate into Caltech and California and whatever. So right now, there could be nothing outside because we're just a blip in the universe. Well, it's worse than that. The, this, this scenario, the Boltzmann brain scenario, predicts with overwhelming probability that there isn't anything out there. <laughs> Where are you to go out there? And so this is where it gets worrisome because, you know, we would like to believe, we don't want to believe this sort of skeptical nightmare, right, that all of our knowledge is unreliable because it just randomly fluctuated into our brains and so forth. And yet that is what our best theory of the cosmos predicts is overwhelmingly likely. And therefore, our best theory of the cosmos is probably wrong. So there has to be something missing in this story that we told, this Lambda CDM story of dark energy never going away and the universe lasting forever. And so there, there probably, the universe probably doesn't last forever. There probably is some future cataclysm uh, that changes the dark energy in some way that saves us from the menace of the Boltzmann brains. 
Right. <laughs> I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. So I, I get it from sort of a philosophical standpoint, but not an actual physical standpoint, how everything that arranged to, to form us in some of these situations, they could spontaneously just arrange instantly in that way and not right. even have to have all the antecedents to what we are. Like the, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't need a factory that made this shirt right. that, that I'm wearing. You wouldn't it's need just, the evolutionary process that turns... Yeah, to be to go farther back. Processor yeah. into humans. Yeah. It just would right. come to be and then maybe stop being a and few then seconds that, later or... And then that right, same thing later. of going, I guess, like, is it the case that if that our current brain, like the arrangement of my brain neurons creates a certain memory of everything that I've experienced, of all the things I've experienced in the past, and you could just zap that into existence, and I would believe that I'd existed up until that point. That is precisely correct. And so this ties in directly to the arrow of time problem, because Mm -hmm. we have memories, right? We have records, we have photographs, we have history books. Why is it that we can trust these memories, these records, even the photographs, right? Mm-hmm. It's much easier if you, if the universe was just random fluctuations, it's much easier to fluctuate randomly into a picture than to actually create that scene in the past, photograph it, and then keep that picture for several years. This feels almost like the godless version of creationism. Yes, it's like, you know, last <laughs> Thursdayism, right? I mean, the easiest way to make the universe we see right now is it for it to have just come into existence very, very recently. But again, we can't believe that that's true. If that were true, then among the things that would have randomly fluctuated into our brains are all the laws of physics, all of our understanding of how nature works and logic works and so forth. And therefore, we would have no reason to believe that it was true. (laughs) So it's what we call cognitively unstable. Even if it were true, we would have no justified reason for believing it was true. So therefore, it can't be true, right? I mean, we don't actually think that most of the appearances of of this room or you and me are random fluctuations. Yeah, and every... And, like cosmos. and a thousand people have randomly generated the same memory. That's right. With no errors between them. Yeah, that's right. Or, although obviously there are errors in people's memories. But like mean, so basically what it's saying is that in this infinite universe with, with thermal fluctuations, uh, there really are an infinite number of monkeys typing the words uh, randomly on the piece of paper. And yes, you do make the words of Shakespeare an infinite number of times, as well as a hugely larger number where you almost make the works of Shakespeare with a few letters wrong, etc. Mm-hmm. So again, nobody believes that so and the 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 escape from that for us is to say that you know we came from this big bang we actually believe the evidence of our senses the evidence of our telescopes uh we reconstruct the past on the basis of assuming that we start in some simple low entropy initial state and then what are what the job of the cosmos there's two jobs that people like me need to do number one explain why the early universe was in this simple regular low entropy state from which we came giving us reliable memories and records of the past and number two figure out how to escape the menace in the future where you recreate people like us without the benefit of the big bang right because I, I guess there would would there be a theoretical possibility that right now we're in the real version of it however at some point in the future there will be there are people who think that that's perfectly okay i i personally think that that it's that you can't say that there will be a, a large or infinite number of versions of this room in the future, but I'm just not in one of them. Right. None of those guys would think they're in one of them either, right? I mean, they're the same as you. Yeah, right. <laughs> what right do you have to be the lucky one who is actually right? Uh, you know, there's, if, if, uh, there's, there's nothing that would be different about their logic than about your logic. Right. Except that it was randomly put together and there could be versions of those 
whatever you call those future things where people's memories and evidence interpretations are completely different from each other because it's just a random assortment. Yeah, that's overwhelmingly likely to be true. But then again, yeah, I was sort of playing this one through in my head going, okay, but yeah, there'll be ones where different people have different ideas of what things are. But then that's the that's case the now. Yeah, no, we live or in different. Or also, we go like. I was also thinking, well, different people have different measurements for physical constants. <laughs> but then, right. then you just then the scientists of that created day would then go, well, this is the new reality that we need to interpret. That now we need to explain why these constants are different. But the overwhelming majority of those randomly fluctuated, what we call the freak observers or the Boltzmann brains, uh, they wouldn't see nearly as orderly and regular uh, uh, local conditions as we do here in our universe. So it, it's not that we. You know, we can't actually sustain the belief is a plausible theory of the universe. But what I'm pointing out is it is the leading theory of the universe right now, right? (laughs) It is what most working cosmologists believe. So we need to, I think we need to do a little bit better. So how does this relate to the arrow of time in terms of, uh, like I was doing some, I stayed up too late last night reading about the arrow of time and then I started to convince myself that like, who needs sleep because time is, uh, <laughs> uh, but so I sort of took it to mean that uh, on a microscopic level, I guess time is symmetrical, but on a macroscopic level, maybe not. Is that yeah, the way of fair. looking that's at it? Right. If you looked at, you know, just two billiard balls or two atoms bumping into each other, the laws as we understand them that govern what happens there work perfectly well if you sort of wind them forward or backward in time. They do the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's no difference between moving toward the past and moving toward the future. But in the macroscopic world, when you have many, many particles involved, when you have people involved and whatever, there clearly is. And so the discovery of the 19th century, Ludwig Boltzmann and, and his collaborators, was that that's not because there's something special about large numbers of particles. After all, if you just have you know a box of gas where the gas is perfectly smoothly distributed, then again, there's no difference between past and future. The gas just sits there, right? There's no mm-hmm. difference in what happens. The difference only arises when you start with something very special, something, something delicately arranged, what we call low entropy, and then let it go, right? When you start with cream and coffee separated from each other, then you can mix them together very easily. And you can't unmix them, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to go one way than to go the other way. Mm -hmm. So as long as you start in that configuration where the cream and coffee are separate, it's the most natural thing in the world for them to mix together. And that's a metaphor for all of the evolution of the universe from 13.8 billion years ago to today. The, The disorderliness, the messiness, the entropy of the universe has been going up. And that's, and that's an indication that time is happening in the direction that it's happening or is that or what, what's what's significant about that or detractors from that what what's the debate if there is any debate uh, yeah so time is just a label right so time doesn't have an intrinsic directionality the directionality comes from the, the behavior of actual stuff in the actual universe right uh just like it happens in the cup of coffee that or you or scrambling eggs right you can do it but you can't undo it uh the arrangement of particles and atoms and dark matter and whatever in our observable universe starts in one configuration and evolves in a very definite direction since then so the only puzzle, you know, there's, there's, there's two kinds of puzzle there. One is the sort of dirty engineering work of connecting that cosmological picture to all the ways in which we perceive the past to be different from the future. You know, I remember yesterday. I do not remember tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What in the world does that have to do with the universe and the Big Bang and stuff like that? So that's a, that's a work question. You know, we right. think that it is true, but we haven't filled in all the details yet. 
Um, and the second question is, why was the early universe in such a low entropy special state? Why was there this weird, apparently unlikely configuration of stuff out of which we came? Why wasn't it just equilibrium, everything smoothly spread uh, in a cold, desolate universe with things randomly fluctuating? And there's no good theories about that yet? Or? No good theories. You know, I have theories. I wouldn't <laughs> call them very good. Uh, other people have theories that they would call good, and I would disagree. I think that, yeah, we're not quite there yet. That's, that's a big challenge for us right now. Huh. But at the, uh, at the microscopic level, like at the uh, atomic level, and below that, the subatomic level, mm -hmm. time is almost in irrelevance. Like, the interactions can well, happen. It's important to distinguish between time and the arrow of time okay right just like you know we have space okay uh -huh. and there is no arrow of space right there's no if you were out there in a space suit far away from the earth there'd be no difference between up down left right forward backward you know you could float and rotate around and, and it wouldn't matter right and you, get, you could get pulled in one direction or another but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's up and that's down that's just yeah. towards the big thing or away from the big thing that's right there's nothing intrinsic about space itself yeah that is, that is pulling you but that doesn't mean that space isn't real right the space is real it just doesn't have a direction Likewise, time is real, whether it's microscopic or macroscopic. You know, time happens in the microscopic world. It just doesn't happen in any different way going forwards or going backwards. If I made a movie of uh, two atoms bumping into each other, interacting, and going their own way, but I showed you the movie backwards, you wouldn't notice anything weird about it. Right, and the same goes with um, uh, decaying of a particle into two other particles or... That's right. Yeah. All, all of these things can happen equally well forward or backward in time. And even macroscopically, as long as the system is sufficiently simple, if you, if you have a pendulum going back and forth, just rocking back and forth, and you, know, you remove as much of the air resistance and friction and noise as you can, I could make a movie of that pendulum going back and forth. I could play that backward and you wouldn't it notice it. It follows either. the rules of – I was reading up about it. If, you just drop, if I drop my phone on the ground and it shatters – and you play that backwards, it's an extremely unlikely thing for it to take in the energy from the ground and the heat right. and reform and come back into my hand. But isn't that theoretically something that could? Yes, that's right. It could happen. It's just really, really, really unlikely. So that's just all that makes the macroscopic level different is just these things are theoretically yeah, possible backwards, that's but right. just very but, unlikely. You know, we have to emphasize how likely unlikely is. You know, if you, if you dropped your phone once a second for a Google time the age of the universe, not once would it reassemble itself. Right. <laughs> probably. probably uh, Remember that being the same thing as uh, vague recollections of physics at school, just again, the, our teacher saying, well, if you leant against a wall for long enough, you could just pass, fall through the wall. That's right, yes. Uh, because that's Not just a the practical way. worry, but yes, yeah. it could happen. Uh, again, if in a 10 to the hundreds, thousands, whatever. Yeah. But eventually there is a possibility that all the particles in you will just end up on the other side of the particles of the wall. Yeah, that's right. All sorts of unlikely things are possible. But it's just negligible because they're so unlikely. Completely so why even yes. bother? Yeah, so. that's right. You know, for all practical purposes, it's a law of nature, the second law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. Entropy goes up. Things become messier, more disorderly with time. And you can ask, you know, if you have a box of particles, uh, if you have only two or three particles, then there's no such thing as entropy. They're just, you know, the, there's there's no sort of orderly or disorderly arrangement of two particles, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you can say, well, as you add more and more particles, 
entropy can go up or down. It can fluctuate. And as you get a lot of particles, then it's just going to keep going up because it becomes harder and harder for it to fluctuate down. And you can ask yourself, so how many particles do I need before it becomes you know, less than once in the age of the universe that they would fluctuate down? And the answer is about 60 particles. <laughs> So right, sixty. It, yeah, sixty. That they would fluctuate right. down in their that they would spontaneously or... become orderly instead of more and more disorderly. So isn't... you know, the air in this room, if you wait long enough, it will all move to one side mm -hmm. just through random motion. So I'm saying that how many air molecules would you need in this room to have a, a chance that that would happen in the lifetime of the universe? And you know, it's a, a couple dozen. So it's <laughs> so even in something becoming more random, uh, it being random, some of those quote-unquote random configurations could look very orderly temporarily because that's the but nature really, of randomness. Really, 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 really unlikely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Sort Plus, of like the phone reassembling or falling through. Yeah. yeah. You know, disorderly or high entropy is not the same as simple. You know, there's this, this, this confusion between complexity and entropy, which is a very different thing. In mm -hmm. the universe, the universe began very, very simple. It will end very, very simple. It's, it's complicated in the middle. Now it's complicated, right? There's stars and planets and galaxies and us. But it goes from simple to simple via complexity. But the entropy is just going up and up and up. Same thing in the cup of coffee, right? When the cream and coffee are separate, that's simple. Uh -huh. When they're all mixed together, that's simple. It's in between when there's the tendrils of cream mixing into the coffee that things look complicated. But okay. the entropy is going up and up and up all the way. Okay. That makes total sense. That does make a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally why we're here in the sense that we are this sort of spin-off of the universe increasing in entropy. You know, mm -hmm. the creationists will say, you know, how can it be that all this complexity and organization happens here on the surface of the earth, even though there's the second law of thermodynamics that says that things just wind down and become higher entropy? Well, the answer is that we are here because the universe is becoming in higher entropy. We are the tendrils in the cup of coffee. We are wow. this little, you know, sort of eddies in the stream as the universe goes from this simple low entropy state to a simple high entropy state. The complexity comes along for the ride in between. Fascinating. That is something I hadn't thought about <laughs> yeah. in the slightest, and thank you for that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I actually wanted to get into, uh, this isn't maybe science, but well, it, I, I was reading through some of your other um, articles, your, your blogs on Discover, um, about philosophy, and I read the, yeah. the free will one and the downward causality one that were really interesting to me. And I didn't know if you want, is that something you might want to talk about for a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm an acknowledged non-expert, but, you know, I think it, knowing something about the laws of physics has an impact on how you think about these things. Yeah. It doesn't give you an expertise all by itself, but it's relevant. Because my, my sort of take on free will is that uh, it's, it doesn't exist in the sense that I think that everything is a result of the interactions at the smallest level of everything that we're made up of. Um, but then I, I sort of got from your argument that it's almost a moot point because it's a useful construct at this level to look at it as free – because why not call Yeah, it I think that? that's exactly right. I mean there's sort of two different kinds of free will, which is what gets people very emotional and, and raises the controversy mm -hmm. here. There's what is called libertarian free will, which is a terrible name because it has nothing to do with political libertarianism. But mm -hmm. it's the idea that you know because we are conscious creatures – we don't need to obey the laws of physics. We are not determined by the laws of nature. You know, there are atoms in our brains, but we are more than that. Mm -hmm. You could not predict what we're going to do just knowing what our atoms are and what they're going to do. 
That's libertarian free will. And I would argue no sensible person believes that. There's no evidence that that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, we're collections of atoms. Atoms do what they do. There's no experiment ever done that says that an atom in a human brain does anything different than an atom does outside a human brain. So that kind of free will isn't there. But there's another sort of more philosophical, more subtle, but much more everyday relevant kind of free will, mm -hmm. which is that I don't know what every atom in my brain is and is doing. I, even though I could predict the future on the basis of that, if I knew, I don't, therefore I can't. Right. So the way I talk about human beings is not by listing every single one of their atoms, right? I say, that guy is uh, annoying. You know, this woman is wonderful or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I talk about human beings using a completely different vocabulary than I talk about atoms. And that's what we do in science all the time. You know, biologists don't need to know the standard model of particle physics and, and to mm -hmm. know the, all the, about the quarks and the leptons. They talk about organisms and genes and so forth. It's a higher level description. Mm -hmm. So in the higher level description of human beings, when we talk about uh, people and their aspirations and their desires and their motivations and so forth, then of course, the ability to make a choice is an important part of how we talk about human beings. Yeah. Right. And so it's not so the kind of free will we do have is, look, just because you were born into this family doesn't mean you're doomed to be a carpenter when you grow up or whatever, right? I mean, right, right. That kind of uh, predestination th that, that involves a sort of very simple and ready-to-hand uh, knowledge of your future state is not something that we have access to. So you can't say, well, I will never be good in school because I'm just doomed to be bad at school. You have the free will to make right, the choice right. to study hard and do better. Even though whether you do that is probably determined by the interactions of all of these billions of tiny things that make you up, but you don't, you don't know you don't how know. those that's are right. organized, so it doesn't matter, so you might as well look at it so as... So from the personal point of view, that's an irrelevance, but if you were able to... If you were able to nail the position and the exact arrangements of these things. That's right. And not only do, are you not able to, but you never ever will be able to. There's no possible way mm -hmm. that you could do that. You well, even from the uncertainty principle, the you can't know where. Well, there's quantum mechanics that comes in. So there's a whole other distracting argument between sort of determinism and randomism. But this is really, even if the laws of physics aren't deterministic, uh, that's not free will. I mean, that's just randomness. That doesn't, mm -hmm. That's not you influencing it. That's yeah. just the laws of physics uh, giving you this. But I think that, you know, it's simultaneously true that our atoms do just exactly what the laws of physics say they should do, and we human beings make choices. That's not a contradiction. It's just two separate stories Scales that we're or, telling yeah. that need to be compatible with each other. The choices you make as a free agent, as a rational actor human being, mm -hmm. need to be compatible with the laws of physics. And they are compatible with the laws of physics. But knowing the laws of physics doesn't uh, restrict your future choices uh, in, yeah. any, in any practical way. I like that. Does that then come back into what we were talking about earlier with the idea that your brain could be created with all the memories... You know, a little bit. I think, again, uh, if you let that possibility lurk seriously in your mind, uh, that way lies madness, right? I mean, it is, a, it, is a, it is a physical theory, a cosmological scenario that is perfectly sensible, but those poor people in that poor universe have no hope of understanding the world in which they live. So our hope is that we don't live in that kind of universe. So making choices is, again, it's a difference between the past and the future, right? We can make choices about what to have for dinner tomorrow. You can't make a choice right now about what to have had for dinner. <laughs> okay. Right. 
And so the reason why we think we can make choices is because the future has higher entropy than the past. The past, we have this access to, this epistemic access, this knowledge, because there was a low entropy Big Bang. We have less knowledge about the future, and therefore we model it as something about which we can make choices. I'm not sure I can totally wrap my head around that intuitively, but I, <laughs> I, I, get, I get what you're, what you're getting at. This is a lot of this is a lot of stuff to take in and still be trying to. <laughs> this has yeah, been. It should great. be a lot of stuff to take in. You know, I think yeah. that. Uh, and again, I'm gonna. I'm very quick to say I'm not an expert in many of these philosophical or social or big picture questions, but I do think that the laws of physics have something to say about them. And I think that even though I am not an expert, mm -hmm. I think it's important that people who are not experts talk about them yeah. because, you know, hopefully the experts correct us where we go wrong, but the, the experts in free will are not experts in particle physics, right? Mm -hmm. There's no one in it who's an expert in all of these things. And so we need to keep the conversation going by allowing non-experts to talk about things with the, with the caveat that they should keep an open mind and be ready right. to take correction when the experts point out where they've gone yeah. off path. Is that part of the appeal? You've also consulted on on a bunch of movies. Um, is that part of the appeal to make sure that like these popular things are getting at least some basic rules right, so that the public are are, are getting access well, to some? Yeah, I think that my my attitude toward that is you look if you're if you're consulting on Thor mm -hmm. like I did. Okay, it's not about getting the laws of physics right. Okay, <laughs> he said Norse not going to be right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, the laws of physics are already out the window. What, I'd like to think uh, Thor was logically consistent. It was well, but that's what—that's exactly what you should think. It can still be logically consistent. It right. can still follow the rules of that fictional. Universe. Once you right, set up right. the rules for the universe, then like, how will that play out? Exactly, and that's what physicists, what scientists are very good at. That's why they're useful in consulting mm -hmm. in storytelling, whether it's Hollywood movies or science fiction novels or whatever. Once you lay out the rules of the scenario, we're pretty good at figuring out what is allowed, what is not allowed, what the consequences are. Right. And I liked you said something about how imposing boundaries in superheroes uh, in movies makes them better, which I totally agree with. And that's part of why I think Superman is kind of a hard thing to get. It's too much. He Superman, has too many Green Lantern. Powers. You just it's never just... know exactly what they can do or what they can't yeah. do. Uh, that's always bothered me. When I tell people that, they're like, why can't you just he can do everything? I'm like, yeah, but what's engaging about that? There's with, no without, limits on <laughs> without physics. There is no drama. Yeah, because there's no limits to what you can do. Drama comes when there are things you can't do or it looks like maybe you can't do them, right? Mm -hmm. There's actual obstacles. There's actual conflict. There's actual hurdles to be overcome. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why you end up inventing cockamamie things like kryptonite or the color yellow, the power rings don't work against, and all these mm -hmm. crazy things. And, you know, as the comics have become more sophisticated, they've improved their the weaknesses that they attribute to the superheroes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you need a world with limits, with boundaries. Otherwise, nothing very interesting. No interesting stories really take place. Yeah. Have you seen the new Man of Steel, by the way? I have not. I have not heard good things. It, I, it was better than I heard it was going to be. <laughs> okay. But I think part of it was that, that he, he isn't infinitely powerful because he's sort of just learning to handle his powers. So there's, there is some conflict in that he's not just the Superman who can spin the earth backwards. Right, and, yeah. right. But I'll put in a plug for uh, the sequel to Thor, Thor 2. The subtitle is The Dark World. Uh, it is conceivable that there's a connection there between dark matter and dark energy. I can't say anything more than that. Mm. But you did have a hand in... <laughs> talking through the script you know the marvel process for making movies is you know takes many years and is very collaborative and i interjected it a couple times and who knows how it will appear in the final product i'm not i was not sort of intimately connected in any way
but you had a hand in it. And if they choose to use your advice, they would probably be better off, we can say. <laughs> I, I can agree to that, yeah. <laughs> and you worked on Tron Legacy also, didn't you? That's right. By there, when we came in, you know, the whole script had been written, and it was a very late interjection. But, uh, you know, we added a few words about the, the most interesting conceptual part of Tron Legacy was this idea that there could be spontaneous generation of intelligent organisms within the, you know, within the computer system, right? Mm-hmm. Within the, the what, are, what do they call it? The grid? Uh, whatever, I forgot right? now. There was Master CPU. Controller yeah. as a character in the first one. I don't know what they <laughs> called the... Uh, I didn't think it was developed yeah. very much. I mean, I think that actually, um, you know, it, I, I was excited when I did that. Um, I was less excited sort of in the aftermath because they really missed a great opportunity because what they did was they said now you know the computer is much more powerful it can really mimic the real world very accurately but what they should have said is the computer is much more powerful it doesn't have to mimic the real world at all right Mm -hmm. you know these light cycle fights these can be in four dimensions right they can you know they can do all sorts of (laughs) it's harder to capture that on traditional cameras so everyone uh, put on your 4d glasses now (laughs) so i mean so they really could have been a lot wilder, I think, and a lot more in the spirit yeah, of the original. Yeah. But I like the movie, but it, it missed some opportunities. I think that's kind of true for any sci-fi, though. I mean, when you look at like alien beings, they're always just people with extra limbs or makeup. Or like, yeah, that's right. Be... And it's something you know. There's some storytelling reason for that. You know, you yeah. can justify that Thor is not really a god; he's really just an advanced alien civilization. But you know, he looks like a really good-looking dude, right? You know, yeah, yeah, what yeah. else would you expect in the story <laughs> that uh, is going to sell tickets? That makes sense. Um, sense. We well, got a little bit of time left, and while we are sort of talking about sci-fi. Uh, there's another area of your research or of your philosophy that um, that I think sort of like touches onto like science fiction hand waving thing, but you're developing as actual theory, and that's the multiverse and right. uh, and the multiverse theory of how we exist. And so, would you mind just talking us through a little bit? Yeah, sure. And again, uh, I hate to be this sort of classifier, but there's two different ways in which the multiverse comes up in uh, physics conversations. One is sort of uh, uh, just a f- using the term multiverse to mean the relatively simple idea that far away from here, there are regions of the universe that look very different. Uh, patches of space, pocket universes, as they're called. And they're connected to ours. They're still part of the same big old system. Mm-hmm. But when I say the conditions look very different, I mean at least that you know the density and and the 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 arrangement of particles is very different but also maybe what they would call the local laws of physics could be very different the actual kinds of particles the kinds of forces space might not be three-dimensional you know in some little pocket of space over there there might be completely different uh laws of physics that would be discovered along the way even though the same underlying laws are there so that's one kind of multiverse, just a whole re- bunch of regions of space where conditions look very right. different. Right, so like the cosmological equivalent of going from Greenland to Spain. Exactly right, yes, that's right. Just It's a different world, yeah. But all those all would have still come from the initial, the same initial conditions, the yeah. same Big Bang, but just then Exactly, so the Big Bang ha- happens and the universe expands, <coughs> and it expands differently in different places. And it sort of ends up, you, you imagine literally a landscape, so you imagine sort of this, um, uh, you know, a two-dimensional uh, picture of hills and valleys and so forth and every valley every lowest point is some place you can end up in a different place and they represent different laws of physics at every different spot in the landscape so the universe sort of travels through this uh, landscape of possibilities the other kind of multiverse is what's called the many worlds of quantum mechanics so if i have an electron and it's spinning either clockwise or counterclockwise uh, quantum mechanics says that when i look before i look at it 
It's doing both. It's in a superposition of clockwise and counterclockwise. But when I look at it, I will only ever see it spin either clockwise or counterclockwise, never both. Right. And so there's this big mystery, the measurement problem of quantum mechanics. What happens at that moment when I do the measurement? What happens to the possibility that I didn't observe? And uh, finally, you know, in the 1950s, it was a, this guy named Hugh Everett, who was a graduate student at the time. Who was the father of Mark Everett's Leasing of the Eels. That, exactly <laughs> right, yes. Uh, and Hugh Everett just said, look, just take quantum mechanics seriously. What happens is that you, the observer, are a quantum system as well as the electron, right? So it's not that you look at the electron and the possibility that it was spinning counterclockwise just poof, goes away. It's that there's the electron that was in a superposition of clockwise and counterclockwise, and then you looked at it, and afterward, the universe is in a superposition. There's the case where the electron was spinning clockwise, and you have seen it spinning clockwise, and there's a whole other possibility space where the electron was spinning counterclockwise, and you have now seen it spinning counterclockwise. And both of those possibilities continue to exist and be real even after the measurement. And this happens every time we do a measurement of a quantum mechanical system, that all the possibilities become real, and these are the many different worlds of quantum mechanics. So the cat continues to be both dead and alive in different universes. Absolutely right, yeah. And there are an infinite number of universes being created at every infinitesimally tiny bit of time, always. Whether the number is infinite or not is not clear, actually. It could just be really big, mm -hmm. but certainly a very large number. Yes. Uh, and that doesn't violate any kind of, I mean, I guess... Again, I'd be applying rules that would have predated this idea, so it doesn't matter. But like conservation of energy wouldn't apply there either because you just suddenly have... No, it doesn't. You, there's different ways of thinking about it, but the simplest way is just conservation of energy is true in every world. And as long as that's true, then you're okay. Mm -hmm. The other way of thinking about it is, you know, there is... when Before you look at that electron, there is a number, the amplitude, that tells you the probability of saying, you know, will it be spin clockwise or spinning counterclockwise? Mm -hmm. And that the amplitude just goes lower and lower and lower as you branch the universe into more and more possibilities. The amplitude is telling you how much of the universe is in this possibility, right? So even though you're creating more universes, the, the share of the whole universe that is given to any one of them becomes smaller and smaller. Okay. I, again, I sort of understand that. I understand that enough, probably, for what <laughs> we're trying. You're just dividing up a, a pizza into smaller and smaller slices. Yes, yeah, in yeah. the same way that you can, if you add a half plus a quarter plus an eighth, right. you still only end up at one. It's kind of like that. Or, you know, there's another way of thinking about it, which is maybe a little bit sketchy but might help, which is to say that before you look at the electron, there were still two copies of you, but they were absolutely identical. You didn't increase the number of copies. You just differentiated the copies, that mm -hmm. they were identical, and now one of them has seen the electron going clockwise and the other going counterclockwise. So this is the kind of actual, real conversation that philosophers of physics are having. What is the best way to conceptualize these equations? Even if we know exactly what the equations are, how should we think about them? What is the conceptual yeah, framework you, we should apply to them? Do you think about it as somewhere conceptually there is another universe where every decision was made differently? Well, I don't think – the only word that I would object to there is somewhere. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's this, there's this temptation to put the other universes somewhere in the universe, but that's not it. Right. Uh, the way to say it is there are a bunch of parallel coexisting universes uh, with all the different possibilities that quantum mechanics allows us. So it's not that everything is possible, but everything allowed by the rules of quantum mechanics would have really happened. So if you have a – you know – you can have a quantum mechanical random number generator. 
So there's a, a an electron that is a 50-50 chance of being clockwise or counterclockwise. Yep. And you measure it, and then you reset it, and you measure it again. It's like flipping a coin. You get a 50-50 chance. Right. So there will be a universe, a reality, where you, where you measured heads for your coin a million times in a row. And those people would be very unfortunate because they would think that their random number generator was broken, but they were just, you know, one of the very, very unlikely. It's like the air molecules going into one side of the room. Right, right? and it's like with a, very, with a regular unlikely. coin, it is entirely possible to toss a toss a coin a million heads in a row. That's right, but the only difference is that in the quantum mechanical case, somebody will be unlucky. <laughs> right. Right? So even though it's a very, very tiny piece of the universal wave function, the quantum state of everything, it's there according to quantum mechanics according to the many worlds approach to quantum mechanics and this is this is the theory that you subscribe to it is it's the it's the sort of to a physicist it's actually the simplest the easiest it sounds complicated because there's all these worlds but there's very few equations there's one equation the, right. the universe just marches along very simply any other approach to quantum mechanics is going to need at least one more equation the many worlds approach minimizes the number of equations because it just says the universe evolves. It splits, but it evol but it splits in accordance with this one equation, the Schrodinger equation from Erwin Schrodinger, the guy with the cat. Uh, every other approach has to either tell you what is picking out, what the observations became, or what happens when you did that measurement, or what, how your knowledge is changing, or something that complicates the story somehow. Because it implies a power that we exert by observing that we should we don't that we can't explain having kind of where if we just say it, we didn't actually make this different there are just the two things that all that happened and we're just experiencing one of them kind yeah of. you have to say so i mean before you observe it there are the two possible outcomes right so when you observe it you only ever see one mm -hmm. so you have two options one is that the other alternative is still there but you can't see it anymore that's the everett interpretation the other alternative says that 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 other alternative really went away. So you need another equation That's to describe to how it really went away. Yeah. Yes. Right. People have tried. People have proposed very serious attempts. Um, but they seem very ad hoc and just, you know, trying to save your intuitions, which is never a good idea when you're doing quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this sort of does, we talked about this with Jan 11, um, about the misappropriation of the idea of quantum by all kinds of sort of Right. New age mumbo jumbo yes. at this macro level that it shouldn't really apply. Right. But then when you say things like, like like this, this sort of would fuel the people who are fans yeah, of absolutely. what the bleep do we know? The reality the of it is much more ground shaking than the Deepak Chopra oving of it. Uh -huh. right. uh, I mean, Deepak Chopra just wants to think that quantum mechanics says that we're all vibrating together in universal harmony, <laughs> and that you know you don't need quantum mechanics for that. That's just you know the '60s talking. Haven't <laughs> quite let it go yet. Uh, and quantum mechanics doesn't say that. We're not, you know, what happens in my brain does not affect what happens in the brain of someone on Alpha Centauri's planets uh, mm -hmm. right away. Uh, but it says that when I look at a spin, the universe splits into two different things, which is kind of a lot more mind-shattering. It doesn't tell you, you know, how to lose weight or anything like that, but it is actually <laughs> a big deal. So, That's great. So we, I, I was kind of hoping out of this show we would find out how to lose weight. Yeah, but, uh, as a eating. natural outcrop. <laughs> exercising is also good, I hear. But, but will we uh, not also slowly evaporate over time? 
if you stop eating, you will. But if you accrete, as we say in the black hole literature, then you can still gain weight. I mean, a black hole will lose weight eventually because it will uh, give off its Hawking radiation. But it will also consistently absorb term, energy. And yeah, it's absorbing it's a lot more energy. Every photon that off. hits it and every particle that hits it. That's right. Yo-yo dieting. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work for black holes. <laughs> there is, yeah, yeah. Some people have tried to propose you know, the, the laws of thermodynamics diet, which just says you know, <laughs> consume, less ener- consume less energy than you use up. That's that's all you could ask. Yeah, that's every diet. That's, yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. that's the short version. Don't eat more than you're burning. I, I didn't think we get onto nutrition, but apparently <laughs> we have. Uh, we I th- we're, we're pretty much out of time, and also I'm worried about introducing yet another concept because there's been, <laughs> I think at least six times during the hour we've been talking where I've just gone. Well, okay, well that's something I need to process <laughs> and digest and something I was completely wrong about. Even during the conversation, I, I think there were at least three times I'm like, so it's like this, and you're like, no, it's a. Uh, it, it's been a. Welcome it's been, to my life. This is you know my everyday experience. So. It's fascinating. Thank you so much it's for been having such us. Such a joy. Really great. Yeah. Um, like I said, for for our listeners uh, to follow you, you're on Twitter at um, at Sean M Carroll. That's, That's right. M for Michael. Yep. yep. Uh, and, and my website is preposterousuniverse.com, and there is a blog there, yeah, which I would highly recommend you guys follow. It's uh, if you're a fan of anything, both popular science and more confusing science you chuck it all up there a lot of your own work and writing and a lot of other just interesting things you found um and and your books as well um from eternity to here from eternity to here is about the arrow of time the multiverse uh all these ideas boltzmann brains that we've been talking about why do you remember the past and not the future and then the particle at the end of the universe is about the search for the higgs boson you know relatively down to earth which we never even really got into we never got into that but read my book or you know or you just will do it again sometime we'll talk about the higgs boson excellent excellent that will be wonderful so please do get those books uh follow the blogs follow the twitter account and as always uh listeners please uh Email us, probablyscience at gmail.com. Tweet us at probablyscience with any questions, comments, clarifications, and uh, and write nice things about us on iTunes as well, because uh, that helps other people find out about us and spread the word. Uh, but in the meantime, once again, thank you, Sean Carroll. Yeah, uh, thanks so much. That was, that was great. Sure, thanks for having me. It's been a great time. <laughs> thank you. We'll see you next week. 